0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at uh, Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Uh, Chris, today we're going to be talking with Rebecca Kreitzer. Rebecca is an assistant professor of public policy at the University of North Carolina. Rebecca was in town for the state politics and policy meeting at uh, Penn State in June, and she spent some time talking with Jenna
1: about some issues that you're, you're They're near and dear to your heart.
0: They are. I did some early work in my career on the questions of how candidates emerge, Mm -hmm. and you know this is uh, an important part of democracy, a part that we maybe don't hear as much about, and that is where do you find candidates, right? Uh, And there, you know, there are different pieces to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is, and probably the part that is well known by the public, of course, is the idea that parties hold primaries or caucuses or whatever it is that they do as a way of choosing choosing candidates. But, you know, there's another piece to that, and that's people deciding right. that, yeah, I'm going to take the plunge I'm mm-hmm. going to run for mm-hmm. office. Uh, and uh, that's kind of where Rebecca's focus is, right. especially and in terms of women. Especially
1: in terms of women. And uh, um, it is quite obvious that right now in American society, there is a strong... Drive and a, a strong reaction um, among women, and such that they are running for office all throughout America well, in, in record number. The other thing that's that is manifested in those same kind of calculations is that you see people running who. Um, who see an opportunity in this election cycle that they wouldn't have had ever before? So you see folks that are transgender, folks that are openly, um, you know, lesbian or gay, folks who are, are African American running in, uh, uh, you know, or or with Somali or or you know, mm-hmm. Latinos and 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 Democratic socialists, right? I mean, the the and and it's the same calculus, right? That this election. Um, creates an opportunity that they wouldn't have seen otherwise. So they're, they're stepping in. It,
0: it really is fascinating when you look at the candidates running in these upcoming elections, you know, on the Democratic side and the Republican side, everywhere from the state level up. Right. So we have to think about three different types of representation, uh, one which has its roots in, I think, the way anti-federalists often thought about representation is this notion of descriptive representation. People should be represented by people like themselves. So in other words, that you need women to be within the legislature because only women have the same experience as other women and can therefore only they can really speak for women. And and I think that... uh, You know, I think that one of the powers of the Me Too movement Mm -hmm. is driving home to Americans more broadly that women live in a different world and have a different set of experiences that that men do not. Mm -hmm. Uh, But substantive representation argues that, you know, anybody can represent your interests. They don't have to be like you. What's important is that your substantive interests.
1: Right and, and and your ideology your values
0: right mm-hmm. exactly so in that case what's important about women candidates might be whether they're conservative or liberal right. that, that women that women be be elected and uh, so I, I guess maybe there's a good point that we move to to hear what Rebecca yeah. has to say about this and uh, so let's bring in uh, Jenna and Rebecca Kreitzer okay
2: hey everyone this is Jenna Spinelli and I had a great conversation with Rebecca Kreitzer uh, all about women in politics, but unfortunately we got to the end of the interview and realized that my microphone was not working. Uh, Rebecca sounded great, though, and thanks to the magic of the studio and our great team here at WPSU, I'm going to take you through our conversation. So let's dive in with uh, a little insight first on why these groups exist to help support female political candidates.
3: So around the rest of the world, there are official policy mechanisms to get women in office, namely quotas, and other things, too, like multi-member districts help. But in the U.S., we don't have anything. Um, And you can combine that with a couple of other factors that depress women's representation. One is that women tend to have lower levels of political ambition. They're just less likely to want to run for office. They also need to be encouraged to run for office by people. So they need a family member, friend, or political leader to encourage them and say, "You would be really great in um, you know in elected office." But elected uh, party leaders, or par- I should just say, party leaders, are actually less likely to encourage women to run. So we have this problem where there aren't enough women who are. Um, empowered and encouraged to run for office. So that's where all these groups come in. These groups, um, many of which are modeled after EMILY's List, which is a national organization, uh, work to recruit or encourage women to run for office. They also provide training to help empower them, make them more... uh, successful and feel more prepared. And then they also provide financial support. So, to get to your question, who are all of these groups, these 400 some groups, and where are they? Well, the answer is they're all over the US. And there are, they are in different formats. So, some of the organizations are federal organizations, which means that there is a national chapter and then maybe state or local chapters. Other ones um, are Uh, sort of loosely connected in terms of they're all modeled after an organization like in my state of North Carolina Lillian's List uh, is modeled in many ways after Emily's List including some of the training but they also have novel trainings that Emily's List doesn't have so really the 400 some active groups are really all over the U.S. there are at least one in every state but in some states there are a lot more that sounds great right
2: but like a lot of things in life, the intention does not always quite match the reality. These groups can sometimes step on each other and are sometimes
3: competing for the same resources as well, as you'll hear Rebecca talk about. Some of them are working together if they have a formal affiliation. So all of the ones that are part of Ready to Run are coordinated um, in terms of they'll have the same content or if they're all part of the um for example, the National Federation of Republican Women, uh, are all going to have some sort of connection. But most of the organizations do work in silos. They are not working with each other. They're not sharing training information or best practices. And we don't really know why that is. We think it might be because they are ultimately competing for both monetary resources and participants. And so there's a disincentive for them to share too much with what we might call their competitors. Uh, But this is a topic that's very understudied, so we don't really know.
2: Another challenge these groups face is how to recruit candidates who satisfy their own mission and who can actually win an election. And uh, again, those two things are sometimes pretty far apart, uh, especially in the case of liberal groups operating in conservative areas and vice versa.
3: You know, there's a problem with relying on it in that way too, because the people who are most connected and affiliated with these organizations tend to be people of privilege. We know that they tend to be, for example, uh, white women who are middle-aged and highly educated. So if you get those people to be recruits or scouts, like in the case of North Carolina, those people, and you and you tell those people to go out and find uh, participants, well, they might think of people that reflect uh, what they think is a good candidate uh, for these programs. And that person might look like them. And so it might also be someone who is uh, very privileged, highly educated, wealthy, probably white. And so although it is grassroots, there still is some inequality. And a lot of the organizations put as a priority, um, I'll put in quotes, diversity, but they don't have a tangible plan for how they're actually going to diversify the pool of women that participate in their organizations. Very few of them actually target specific groups. Sometimes those specific groups are um, things like women business owners, though oftentimes they're a racial or ethnic group. Uh, But most of the time people say they want diversity, but there's not really a plan to get there. And if you've seen any of the news stories about this, they almost always talk to some of these organizations about the record numbers of enrollments that they've seen. And really the number of women that are participating in these uh, has skyrocketed. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but just huge increases in how many women are participating in these organizations, which is great if they're working towards empowering women. And I I do believe that the people who uh, come out of these trainings do feel empowered. But one thing that we don't know is, are they actually helping? Are they effectively getting more women elected? We don't know. This is an important question to be asking right now because there's a lot of money that's going into these organizations, either through the tuition to participate in these or through contributions from donors who would like to see more women elected. So there's a lot of money at play and a lot of time and effort that's going into these organizations. And ultimately, we don't know if they are effective at what their primary goal is, which is electing more women.
2: In the course of her research, uh, Rebecca found that uh, reproductive rights uh, emerges as a s- sort of litmus test for uh, many women's groups in determining uh, whether or not to endorse or support a candidate.
3: So in our building of the census of women candidate groups, we found that there are about 400 active groups right now. 80 of them are Democrat-affiliated, or, or um, identify, say, that they are working to uh, elect progressive or Democratic women. 79 of them say that they are working to elect conservative or Republican women. So if you just look at the partisanship or ideology, you would think, well, it's pretty equal between the different uh, political parties or ideologies. But in reality, there's this group in the middle that say that they are non or bipartisan that really aren't. A a very significant majority of those ones that are bi or nonpartisan, about two-thirds of them actually, require a very strict pro-choice litmus test, which is ultimately framed or or is often uh, often modeled after Emily's List uh, abortion training, which requires uh, the participant to uh, have a stance of abortion that they believe all laws are um, infringing on a woman's right to choose. And a much smaller number of them Of that remaining group are ones that have a pro life stance. So, what we see is that while partisanship or ideology doesn't really go very far in telling us uh, who these groups are available to, when you take into account the issue of abortion, there are many more opportunities for training, recruiting, and funding for women who are progressive, Democrat, or pro choice, and much fewer for women who are Republican, uh, conservative, or pro life. And there is still a number of them that are quite strictly non- or bipartisan.
2: So what happens when women get into office? Do they keep the momentum going that got them elected? And why should we care about how many women are in office in the first place?
3: I I will say that women legislators face... A number of burdens that their male counterparts don't have. Some of it has to do with gendered media coverage, um, a difficulty raising money. They tend to have to raise it through smaller donations, which means they have to spend more time raising money than some of their male counterparts. And then, of course, once they're in the chambers, there are a wide variety of gender norms that they may be violating by their very presence. And in some state legislatures, they may face more um, outward. Or maybe implicit, or um, I'm not sure what the word is, what, what I'm trying to say here, but there, in some chambers there are going to be some places where they face more outward sexism and sexual harassment than in other places. And we see that in Congress as well. Um, and then when it comes to making policy itself... Women oftentimes don't have the seniority of their male counterparts, and seniority determines who is committee chairs, uh, who or who are committee chairs, um, and other leadership positions. And so women often have to really fight to get a, a place of power within those chambers. There are two caveats that a lot of people often say about women running for office. One is that when women run, they win. That's true. But it's less true if you take into account that the women who are running are more highly qualified than the men. So they tend to have more experience. um, And there's there's a variety of ways that we measure candidate quality. But it's true that when women run, they win, but they're higher quality candidates. And the other thing that people often say is that women can raise just as much money as men. Well, the men are raising that money in larger donations and women in smaller donations. So why do we even care if there's more women in office? Well... It turns out that the number of women in office is really important for a number of reasons. One reason is that it's important for democratic legitimacy to have an institution that reflects the people that they're representing. So it should have more women. It should have more people of color. And not just those types of diversity. It would be great if they also had socioeconomic diversity. Uh, That way they can uh, better reflect the people. But it um, it, it also helps to empower women and people of color. And when you have that sort of what we call descriptive representation, so that when people look at the institution and they see... Oh, there are black people in the legislature. Black people can be leaders, and we see very powerful images. You might be able to imagine the picture of President Obama leaning forward and a little kid touching his hair, and he was amazed that a president could have curly hair like him. Uh, the third reason why this is really important is that sometimes, or is that is that oftentimes we see that women and people of color provide both descriptive representation, which is having that physical um, connection, but also substantive, substantive representation, which means that they are more likely to represent those groups when it comes to policies that really affect them. So we might see, for example, that women legislators are able to provide an extra level of representation when it comes to women's issues. And indeed we do see that women tend to introduce and sponsor more policies that have to do with women's issues. And they also frame them, um, in, in, in terms of protecting women or in terms of gendered, with gendered language. And the final reason why it's important to have a descriptively diverse and representative body is that sometimes there are issues that occur to people that don't occur to others. So, for example, in the last few years, there's been a lot of talk about the tampon tax. Well, what that is, is that in a number of states, um, sanitary napkins and tampons are taxed as a luxury. But all these other items aren't, including like pinball machines and Viagra and I don't know, a whole bunch of just really kind of goofy things when you look at it. And a number of people started raising this question of why are women's feminine hygiene products taxed as a luxury, when I think if you ask most women, they would say it's not a luxury. Um, And the answer is is that a lot of men, it just never occurred to them. They didn't realize that that was happening. They didn't realize why that was a problem. And so that's not to disparage men or say that men are not thinking about women. But sometimes um, our own lived experiences can provide us important insight into policy.
2: And finally, as we do with every episode of Democracy Works, we're going to end with our Mood of the Nation poll questions. So here's Rebecca's take on what makes her angry, proud, worried, and hopeful about
3: American politics. The lack of true communication between people. And so when I think back, um, today there's we often see that people bicker and they just filter everything through partisanship. And we don't see a lot of true um, open discourse. Just over the weekend, I was re-watching when Fred Rogers was testifying before a Senate committee. It's amazing. You should put a link to that on there, too. And in it, at the beginning of the clip, they, um, the senator was I, you know, pretty clearly not interested in funding PBS. And actually, I don't know if it was PBS at the time, but whoever was uh, providing money for Fred Rogers' show. And it was, it was amazing because in the course of the short conversation, you saw the legislator really be open-minded and ask questions, and you saw the very polite discourse in both ways. I would like to see more open and polite discourse. Okay, what makes me proud? Well, one thing that makes me proud is um, today we see a great number of people who are really interested and excited. And one thing that makes me proud is that, at least in theory, we provide an institution, um, we provide a a set of government that really encourages participation among different groups. Now, that's not perfect, because as we look um, across the states and at the national government, there are a lot of policies that really restrict participation, things like felon disenfranchisement laws or voter registration and things like that. But those are things that over time, I'm optimistic, um, can be changed. But really fundamentally, as a country, we encourage political participation in a way that makes me optimistic. And we see it a lot today, um, especially among young people are, I think, a little bit more interested in politics than they have been in, um, in other times. One thing that makes me worry is how strongly everybody filters information through partisan lenses. We might be able to say that some of this is, in part, attributed to the ways we receive information. It used to be the case that everybody watched the evening news, and there were only a couple of channels. Today, now when you watch the evening news, um, if you're watching it on a television at all, you might be watching some sort of cable news network. And I'm not just blaming cable news, but they have, um, they're speaking to their audience, and they have incentives to fill 24 hours' worth of content. Um, we also see that people are self-selecting the news that they receive, either through social media, online. We're not seeing as many people pick up a full newspaper and read it from the front page to the back page. Instead, people tend to click on stories that are interesting to them. And that shapes the way journalists are conveying information as well. And when people start thinking about politics, if they're not getting Um, as much neutral information or hearing from different sources, it tends to just reinforce their previously held beliefs. And so I do worry that we're uh, living in an era and this may only become more of a concern in the future where people are self-selecting the news that they want to read that reinforces the beliefs that they already have and don't have any interest in really truly listening to other people. Well, what gives me hope is that I do see a lot of people that are talking about these issues that would like them to change. So today we do have a lot of people who are um, calling for more discourse between people that are highlighting the problems with uh, polarization and the highly partisan way we think about issues. So I'm hopeful that those will change. I'm also hopeful that um, some of those barriers to participation that I mentioned a few minutes earlier are becoming ameliorated. So just a few weeks, a recently, I can't remember exactly when this happened, uh, one state actually changed their felon disenfranchisement laws. Now, there are other states that I'm hoping are watching and seeing that they should do that. And um, there's evidence that that changing voter registration to make it easier for people to register and easier for people to vote increases uh, voting. So I'm optimistic that we can learn a lot from other states and that people are starting to really call for some changes to these policies.
1: All right. Well, so uh, Rebecca it, obviously has, you know, um, done some really important work in this in this field, and there's just a lot to, to, to reflect on. Um, I think it's really interesting um, how these organizations um, were were designed. To that the, the organization she's speaking to uh, were designed to interest women in politics, and so it gets to directly to what you were saying, Michael, about um, how you move someone from A to B. Every individual has to make this decision. Yeah. To, to, to you know, give up a lot of their lives to run for office.
0: Yes, and Rebecca alluded to this a little bit. I mean, there there is a lot of research that, that just suggests that this calculus that people go through in their own mind about what to do is different for women than for mm-hmm, men. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've often thought about it in terms that, you know, so many men just feel like, yeah, of course I'll run, yeah. and of course I can win, and right. of course I could do this job, and that a lot of women, it seems, are women may be more likely
1: to say... Should I do this? Right. Am I qualified right. to do this? Right. But the the other thing that is interesting in terms of what you're saying is how many of these organizations... Um, kind of implicitly understand and accept this kind of different calculus that women often make, right. and therefore they focus on the long term, right? They focus on high school uh, girls, college women, young w- young professional women, and just say, you know, think about this. Put it in the back of your head. So they're just putting a bug in these women's ear, you know, and just thinking maybe, you know, and, and the other thing that's interesting is that it's not necessarily um, you know, the objective isn't only to get women to run for office, it's just to get them engaged and and politically active, and to have them be part of the process generally. Which you know, I mean, it's it's a, a, a different uh, objective, but it's it's no less essential to a to a democracy, and no less essential to the kind of objectives they've set up.
0: Yes, yeah, it really ties back a lot too to L- Lara. Yes, from Absolutely. last week, mm-hmm. with what, uh, what they're talking about, and uh, you know, it's just hard not to. It, 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 hard not to see so much of what's going on within the Democratic Party these days as coming from women uh, organizing in different kinds of ways and and running for office yeah yeah it, it really and, and the party's going to look different afterwards because uh, of this uh, there's no I
1: mean it already it is already is a party right?
0: yeah it already is a party I mean it it is a party in Congress that's very different from the Republican party. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of uh, women in leadership positions, if it's just in terms of the number of women.
1: So I, I do think this is worth um, bringing back to the issue of um, where we are um, as a country politically and culturally and socially and economically, just that things are, are um, shifting. Right. I mean, that 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 there are there is an energy and a and a uh, and I said before, a dynamism to all this that is both exciting and unsettling and a little scary because we don't know where it's going to go. Right.
0: Yes. And and you take the three podcasts that we've done most recently together, going back to Selena, uh, who talked about uh, Trump supporters. Yeah, the Trump and, coalition. And and then Lara last week. And then Rebecca's here. And, you, yeah, you do sense this is going to be an interesting election. Mm-hmm. There is, mm-hmm. there is a lot of
1: energy out there on both sides, uh, or at least a lot of passion. It is just a condition of politics that if you're in power, you are less um, engaged with the next election. It just, it's just always going to happen that you just take, um, you just are more. Um, accepting and satisfied with the status quo and therefore you're more likely to stay home. And in this case for the See, person- I think it's, a, it's also a little bit different than that if we're talking
0: you're, you're talking about the public, not the elite right. and you know so I think you, it's just very hard to generate anew the energy and excitement you feel, In a presidential campaign for your person. And, you know, we really saw this with the Trump campaign. And this is what happened to Obama, too that they're bringing in people that are more marginal voters. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just not as consistently engaged. Election to election, year to year, but they're excited. They're you know we heard this in the interview a couple of weeks ago. Right with Selena, they, mm-hmm. with Selena, the you know the 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 personal connection, right, and the sense of shared grievance, right, that they and that, that they have with Things are going to change, and you know, and with with Barack Obama, it brought out all kinds of people that were just so excited we by the, the, the sense of we were hopefulness, for, yep. the change we're looking for, and you know, and then they get in and they're just involved in the hard work of politics. And it gets ugly and it gets discouraging
1: and it's almost inherently Lee. inevitably disappointing it's always a letdown <laughs> right
0: and and on the other hand, the other side is just like I knew it was going to be bad yeah, and it's yeah. even worse than I thought right. and and that's an energy that that can mm-hmm. uh be be uh be channeled into the next election and what we've seen in the last two podcasts are these organizations that are trying to do just that in particularly really focusing on on women who we've seen and we mentioned this last time too in the polling are the ones that are just the, the as sort of at the vanguard right now mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. of uh, Anger towards Donald Trump. I can't understand why, but that just seems to be something that's happening.
1: <laughs> I um I think it is absolutely true that 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 women are um driving um a lot of the energy and and a demand for um for change, demand to be heard. That's part of American politics, and I and I can't imagine that that's not going to have an impact going forward that transcends 2018. Yeah, and it will be very interesting to see that. So this has been a, a, an interesting uh, uh, three episodes. And as usual, we stumbled into this. We didn't plan it. But it still has a, has a really interesting synergy. And, and it's great to put them together. So let's just pretend that we knew what we were doing. You don't give Jenna enough credit. <laughs> She tells me that all the time. No kidding. <laughs>
0: so, um, from uh, Penn State and the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm
1: Chris Beam. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Thanks for, for de- listening.
0: For Democracy Works, and. We'll see you next week.
1: Okay.